from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. Joe Biden entered the White House promising to overhaul America's economy, to use climate solutions as his main tool for raising wages, revitalizing infrastructure, and tackling inequality. But almost overnight, reporters like Maxine Josselow saw that framing shift. I have actually noticed a really interesting thing with Biden's rhetoric about his climate agenda, and it started with the State of the Union. The State of the Union, the speech that defines presidential priorities. This year, it started with Russia and Ukraine, and then the rescue plan, and then jobs, and then infrastructure, and then tech innovation, and then inflation, and then prescription drugs and insulin. And then, 30 minutes in, the man who ran with climate as the centerpiece of his campaign devoted one minute to it. Let's cut energy costs for families. An average of $500 a year by combating climate change. Let's provide an investment tax credit to weatherize your home and your business. You start to see a real shift with the president, not necessarily emphasizing the climate benefits of reducing emissions for the planet for our survival, but actually the cost savings that could result. Double America's clean energy production in solar, wind, and so much more. Lower the price of electric vehicles, saving another $80 a month that you're not going to have to pay at the pump. And I think that's directly a result of the kind of political calculation around rising gas prices. U.S. gasoline prices are at their highest levels in history, and they're still going up. And that's because of supply disruptions caused by Russia's attack on Ukraine. And Biden's political calculation reflected the shifting mood in Washington. I think you see lawmakers of both parties saying that Putin has weaponized energy. It's time for us to weaponize it back. In the weeks after Russia's invasion, lawmakers across the spectrum started pushing for a ban on Russian oil. And then on Monday, the president heeded the call. We're banning all imports of Russian oil and gas and energy. That means Russian oil will no longer be acceptable at U.S. ports and the American people will deal another powerful blow to Putin's war machine. A ban on Russian oil is mostly a statement. America is a net exporter of oil, and we don't get that much from Russia. But it's one of Biden's highest-profile decisions on energy, and it wasn't a signature climate bill like he'd hoped months back. Still, the move got resounding support for a moment. But then I think it became a broader conversation about what do we do to replace the oil that we're not importing from Russia. And there we got into Republicans saying we need to lift restrictions on domestic fossil fuel production. It's kind of the drill baby drill crowd. And on the other hand, you have Democrats saying, no, actually, we need to curb our reliance on fossil fuels and boost clean energy. This is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. A geopolitical crisis is transforming the domestic conversation around energy in Washington. Security is the new lens. How will it impact Biden's narrow chance to do something ambitious on climate change? Faced with a surge of distributed energy resources, electric cars, and grid constraints, utilities are ramping up dynamic pricing. But the results are mixed. If utilities don't implement rates correctly or transparently, it could be a major roadblock for the energy transition and a headache for customers. On June 13th, Latitude Media and GridX will host a Frontier Forum to examine the imperative of good rate design and the consequences of getting it wrong. Register at the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com events. 
Clean energy and climate tech are policy-driven industries, and anyone working in this field touches local, state, and federal policy in a very real way. And that's why you should be listening to Political Climate, a podcast from Latitude Media and Boundary Stone Partners that delivers an insider's view on climate policy and politics. Every other week, co-hosts Julia Piper, Emily Dominich, and Brandon Hurlbuck cover the nuances of government funding, regulations, backroom negotiations, and the election, of course. Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations and strong opinions from voices across the political spectrum. Listen at latitudemedia.com or subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. Maxine Josselow is a staff writer at The Washington Post. She writes the Climate 202 newsletter. Maxine covers a wide spectrum of climate policy stories, and suddenly Russia is dominating that spectrum. I think this really has sucked up the oxygen in the room and become the main issue and story that everyone's talking about and debating. And for good reason. As we detailed in our last episode, this story touches virtually everything in energy. The cost to heat our homes, the cost to drive, the cost and availability of uranium, batteries, solar panels, the cost of building materials, which means any conversation about where we are headed on climate is tied up in the economic and humanitarian disaster caused by Putin. There's this phenomenon now as a climate reporter where a big event happens in the world. And at first I'm like, this isn't really a climate story, is it? And then it quickly becomes apparent that everything is a climate story, Stephen. Like everything is related to climate change in some way. Which brings us to the current state of affairs in the U.S. Because this whole situation creates some new political opportunities for both the environmental hawks and the fossil fuel hawks. And Biden, the guy who promised to be the transformative climate president, is in very delicate territory over how he frames his agenda. I chatted with Maxine about how it might play out. I think the the oil and gas lobby has been extremely vocal in saying that Biden needs to help them drill more and in trying to argue that he has somehow restricted their ability to drill more. And I think you see the White House pushing back on that argument um, with some factual counterpoints, and in particular, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki at her briefings has said, actually, there's about 9,000 permits for oil and gas companies to drill on public lands that are going unused. You also saw the Interior Department coming out with numbers about how oil and gas drilling on federal lands is a small percentage of overall drilling in the U.S. Most of it takes place on private lands where the Biden administration has no ability to curtail it. And the other talking point that you're seeing being debated is the oil and gas lobby has continued to hammer Biden for revoking a key permit for the Keystone XL pipeline soon after taking office. And they've kind of tried to say, if the Keystone XL pipeline was in operation right now, we'd be in a better position with gas prices. And I think you see the White House and the Biden administration pushing back and saying, well, no, actually, if you look at the facts, Keystone XL was about 8% complete when Biden took office. There's very little chance that it would have been operational if he hadn't revoked the key permit before 2023. And so that wouldn't have had any immediate impact. This seems to be the central tension in Biden's presidency in the lead up to the COP climate talks as oil prices rose quickly and natural gas prices rose quickly. Uh, Biden had to go to OPEC and ask them to produce more oil. And in in the days leading up to that international climate conference, you suddenly have an American president who is talking about how ambitious his climate agenda is asking for more 
oil production. And now the situation has gotten much worse, and there are greater calls for more domestic oil and gas production. Certainly not the kind of conundrum that the president expected to be in. How do you think he's going to handle it? I think it's a really difficult balancing act for him to handle and for his cabinet secretaries to handle. I think you saw that uh, when Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm was at Sarah Week, the huge oil and gas industry conference in Houston this week. And in her speech, she said that oil and gas companies need to ramp up supply, ramp up production to counter this energy crisis as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But she kind of had to do this careful balancing act where she was calling for them to increase supply in the short term to help with this immediate crisis. But in the long term, she was saying they need to be a partner with the Biden administration in the fight against climate change. And rather than energy companies, or rather than oil and gas companies, they need to become energy companies and deploy more renewables. So it's this really tough uh, balancing act for, for the administration. Mark your calendars for June 13th at noon Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and GridX will host a live interactive discussion on implementing modern utility rates. Dynamic rates are vital for motivating customers to electrify, adopt DERs, and embrace demand flexibility. Utility rates could make or break the energy transition. So how do we do it right? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, GridX CCO Scott Ingstrom, and economist Ahmad Faruqi for an in-depth discussion on the future of rates on June 13th. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com slash events. I'm Julia Piper. I'm Brandon Hurlbut. And I'm Emily Dominich. A little over a year ago, political climate took a break so we could focus on the groundwork of implementing America's biggest ever climate bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. I'm excited to say political climate is back. And I'll be joined by my two co-hosts to riff on the top political stories and insider scoops from state houses to the halls of Congress to regulatory agencies and even international climate talks. We'll explain how those developments are driving industry decisions today. Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations. And to learn about how energy and climate policy is shaped within both political parties from the people who have actually helped shape it. So join me, Brandon and Emily, every other week, starting in April, for fresh episodes of Political Climate. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. In recent history, energy security has been an important messaging frame for getting Republicans and Democrats together on local renewable energy. Under the Biden administration, the conversation has shifted to this broader economic shift with a lot of social aims, and that has created some political divisions around this. But energy security is the glue that holds Republicans and Democrats together on the clean energy transition. So how could this shift in the conversation actually benefit Biden's climate agenda? Yeah, I've I've noticed a really interesting rhetorical shift where under former President Donald Trump, you saw him often talking about this idea of energy independence. It's something that we've talked about for decades. And when Trump talked about it, he was talking often about boosting domestic fossil fuel production. But after Russia invaded Ukraine, we started to see Democrats reclaim this term of energy independence and use it to argue that we need to get off of fossil fuels because they're leading to us becoming at the whims of petrostates like Russia and at the whims of the volatility of global energy markets, whereas clean energy is reliable, it's dependable, it can be affordable if we subsidize it properly. And 
I think a good example of this was Senator Tina Smith, who was the main architect of that big clean electricity program that Democrats had to drop from Build Back Better. She had this tweet that I actually have open in a tab. She said, um, no other country can tell us when the sun can shine or the wind can blow. If the build out of clean energy is not the very definition of energy independence, I don't know what is. So there are now calls to use this moment to increase the production of technologies that could help us reduce reliance on Russian gas. There is a call from environmental groups to use the Defense Production Act to accelerate the production of heat pumps that could electrify homes and reduce reliance on gas for heating. What are, what are the calls and how are they resonating in Washington? Essentially, this all started with the author and 350.org founder, Bill McKibben, writing this newsletter and, and post on Substack where he was calling for Biden to invoke the Defense Production Act to shore up U.S. manufacturing of heat pumps and send them to Europe to counter Europe's reliance on Russian gas. And that was in late February about a week later, my colleagues at the Washington Post on the White House team and the climate team scooped the fact that White House aides are actually seriously considering this idea. And they're in talks about how this would not be unprecedented. It would be similar to what the U.S. did in World War II, um, sending technology to the Allied forces. And as of Wednesday, uh person familiar with the matter spoke on condition of anonymity to my colleague, uh, Jeff Stein, who covers economics for the Post, and said the White House is still actively considering this idea. There's, I think, a question of whether Biden could act unilaterally through executive action or whether this would go through the appropriations process in Congress. But nonetheless, this is under active discussion. And the idea got a big boost on Wednesday as well. You saw more than 200 groups issue an open letter to Biden calling on him to use this authority. Joe Biden is betting that Americans will understand his message of sacrifice for the benefit of Ukraine and the benefit of Europe. And it's possible that his climate and clean energy messaging could feed into that, that we are making these sacrifices by, by raising prices in the short term, but that, that we have all these other solutions that can help alleviate that pain. How do you think those two messages may come together? And are, is the American political environment ready to handle that message? Yeah, I think there is actually some polling that shows that Biden's ban on imports of Russian oil was widely politically popular. Most people say they're willing to support that. And so there's a case to be made that even if gas prices do continue to go up, the American people understand that this is a sacrifice in the name of freedom and democracy and countering Russia's aggression in Ukraine. On the other hand, I think we're going to continue to see Republicans attacking Biden over high gas prices, saying they're a result of not only the war in Ukraine, but Biden's climate policies. And that's going to be a trend that I only expect to ramp up as gas prices continue to rise. Maxine Josselow is a Washington Post reporter who anchors the Climate 202 newsletter. 
The Carbon Copy is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. Our Postscript producers are Cecily Mesa Martinez, Jamie Kaiser, Alexandria Herr, Dalvin Abawaje, and Daniel Waldorf. Anne Bailey is our editor. Sean Marquand mixed the episode and composed our theme. Original music came from Echo Finch and Blue Dot Sessions. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a range of sectors, including advanced energy, food and agriculture, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. Give us a rating and review on Apple or Spotify. Send us your thoughts on social media. We'd love to hear about how you're thinking about this story and send a link of this show to a friend or colleague. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Carbon Copy. We'll catch you next time. (laughs) 